Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 21st of August. Welcome to the World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Emily, let's jump straight in this week and go to the realms of cyberspace where the Democratic National Convention has been playing out instead of Milwaukee, as was anticipated. It's a really big week. It feels like the US election campaign is really off and running now. Can you just sort of talk us through your, your, your take on that? You've been watching it from home in Washington. Do you think it's gone well for the party? Any surprises? Any big takeaways? It's funny to hear you say that it feels like the election has, is just kicking off because we, of course, had our first primary debates back last June. But yes, it was a big week for US politics. And my observations are first that I I mean just from a technical standpoint I was impressed at how at how the DNC pulled this off it was it was technical difficulties were minor they used the fact that it was virtual in some interesting ways for example the roll call from the different states actually showcased people and then all around the country and you know showcased America's diversity and et cetera et cetera the other thing is that the Democrats are very clearly trying to demonstrate that they're the the party of the big tent right so while Trump is doubling down, and speaking to his base, the Democrats are saying, well, this is if you're a Republican and you're disenchanted with Trump, you should vote for Biden. If you're a progressive, you should vote for Biden. If you haven't been paying super close attention, you should vote for Biden. And what I will be interested to see in the next 70 some days before the election is whether that message and the kind of Biden is decent and Trump can't do his job, which was you know the driving theme of the convention, whether that works or if whether in trying to be kind of all things to all people the democrats end up disappointing various various groups i have to say i thought i was watching the switching between all these different delegates around the country and was briefly reminded of the the voting in the eurovision song contest which almost always involves one or two lines going down or people getting mixed up and it was it was absolutely flawless it's technically it's technically seen it was very impressive i thought you were going to say that it reminded you of the eurovision in terms of like the spirit of eurovision i was like well i don't know but maybe no, i think i think the comparison the comparison has to be has to be limited there uh, but one one thing i wanted to quickly ask you about we were talking about this earlier today and i was struck by by your your comment that you're still somewhat pessimistic about 
Biden actually ending up as president, which is which is interesting because it cuts against quite a lot of the commentary. You know, people were a bit impressed at the speeches. He gave a very slick performance. He's still got a big lead over Trump in the polls. I mean, you know, there's still a while to go. But why are you so kind of gloomy about 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 the outcome? Yeah, I think it's a few things. First, polls are tightening, which who knows why polls do what they do. But but I, I do think that now people are kind of acclimating to this to this strange new normal. And so maybe what seemed shocking and horrible at first doesn't to some people. I also was really struck by um, one statistic that said half of white voters have said that they're planning on voting for Trump, even with the pandemic and with the economy being as bad as it is. And I also think that the logistics of this election are going to be very difficult and that it will be harder for people to go out and vote. So I still think that we have four more years of Trump ahead of us. And obviously, if if I'm proven wrong, I'm happy to talk about that on this podcast in November or December oh, and or whenever we have the results. But okay, enough about the United States, Jeremy. What was your moment of the week? Uh, briefly, my moment of the week, because I've been away for a couple of weeks, I'm going to be greedy and claim three. I was very struck by the scenes of workers at a tractor factory outside Minsk booing Alexander Lukashenko when he appeared there on Sunday and calling on him to resign. This was obviously meant to be a kind of a reboot of uh, Lukashenko's public standing in Belarus. He went to this factory assuming that it was part of his political, that it would be a politically loyal stronghold, and it turned out not to be. It was just a very striking set of images from there, and I think a sign of, of, of how much the country has turned against him and how much has changed in relatively little time. On the same day, Thailand saw its largest protests in recent years over overreach by the government and by the royal family. That too, I think, a, a fascinating sign of how quickly politics is changing in these sort of febrile coronavirus-tinged uh, summer months. And then um, on Wednesday, there was a coup d'etat in uh, Mali. The uh, Prime Minister, uh, Ibrahim Boubacar Keita, resigned under pressure from the military after months also of protest over perceived government incompetence and economic stagnation. So I think just three dates from the last few days reminding us of the hot summer of protest that we that we have been going through. I'm really delighted to introduce our guest this week, who many listeners will be familiar with his writing for the New Statesman and elsewhere. And that is Professor Adam Toos, the British historian at Columbia University, director of the European Institute there who's written widely on history, economic history, and has been covering the the long-term fallout of the coronavirus epidemic over the past months and its sort of economic significance. Adam, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. And we're particularly grateful also for your piece in our upcoming New Statesman Symposium, The World to Come, in which we've asked several of our most thoughtful contributors to write about the defining issues of our time as the as the virus goes on, grappling with the big questions about what it will mean for the future, and how the world coming out of this pandemic uh, over the next months and years will be different from that going into it. Adam's written a, a fascinating contribution about the, uh, the role of central banks, and in particular, how their preparations for a climate crisis influenced and differed from their actual response to the coronavirus crisis. Adam, do you want to start by just talking us through uh, your argument? Well, I think it's sort of the other end of the spectrum from where you started with the podcast today. So so you were talking about the the movements of mass protests all around the world. And Emily was referring to the DNC, you know, classic party politics, all of which I think are struggling to come to terms with the various shocks that we've been exposed to 
And, you know, at the, at the other end, if you like, of the spectrum, modes of political intervention and power, sit central bankers who pull the levers of monetary policy. They set interest rates. They can expand the bank, central bank balance sheet by buying various assets and pumping money into the economy. They've been incredibly busy since the shock of March 2020 in the West. In fact, the Chinese central bank was already active in February, and they have, to an astonishing extent, reprised the activist role that they played already in 2008. So what I think we have to think about going forward is you know, what role that kind of agency plays in enabling us to cope with the sorts of crises that we now need to expect. And the sort of crisis which I take COVID to be is what many people call an anthropocenic crisis. So part of the comprehensive blowback from nature onto our political, social and economic systems generated in complicated ways by our own interaction with nature. So we're living within the feedback loop of our own activity. And the question really is, what role do, well, politics in general, people, the politics of the street and protest, but also agencies like central banks play in responding to the sorts of crises ahead. And my piece is essentially saying, you know, we need to open ourselves up to the possibility that really state-led activism is going to be crucial. There's so much, you know, there's, there's only so much that individuals can do, businesses can be expected to do to prep. We, we have coming out of 2008 deep reservations about various types of government activism because in the great financial crisis of 2008, essentially the central banks and government were bailing out the people who were responsible for generating the risk. In a very, very general sense, we are responsible for generating climate risk. We are generating responsible for generating zoonotic disease mutation as well. But the question, of course, is what can we reasonably expect people to do to prepare to cope with these kind of shocks? And what I'm arguing essentially is that there's an indispensable role for the balance sheet of government, of the state, of us collectively in coping with these kind of risks. And we're just at the beginning, really, of thinking through what that will entail. But broadly speaking, it has to be said that the central bank part of this story has gone so far reasonably well. In other words, it turns out we do have a playbook and it was to hand and it was implemented very rapidly from March and comprehensively across the world. So this isn't just an advanced economy story by any means anymore. Uh, Major emerging market central banks were also highly, have been and continue to be very active. What we need to think about is the politics of this, because obviously it confers a lot of power on essentially technocratic, unelected agencies, which from the 80s onwards pride themselves on their independence, quote unquote. Yeah. And that really is one of the frontiers, I think, for progressive politics going forward. Certainly. At the heart of your piece is this idea of the coronavirus pandemic as an anthropocenic crisis, as you say, a, a crisis caused by humanity's sort of impact on the world. And you group under that phrase, the pandemic and potentially future pandemics, but also climate change. And there's a a phrase that really stood stood out to me reading it, which is that you write, central bankers thinking about climate change had a timeline of 12 years, but 12 days is a long time in COVID world. How far do you think we can draw comparisons and learn lessons from the experience of dealing with coronavirus, primarily in terms of central bank responses, which, as you've compellingly argued, need to be central in how we deal with these these crises, but also more widely? Because a lot of people are sort of saying, you know, this is a, a trial run for catastrophic climate change. How far can we take the comparison? 
Well, I think what COVID reminds us is that the effects of climate change will come in many different forms. And some of them will be long durée, slow, grinding, attritional changes. You know, the progressive erosion of the ability to grow crops in certain places, the way in which year on year parts of the Middle East, for instance, will simply become uninhabitable without massive air conditioning because they're too hot. Sea level change. And then there will be elements of this huge transformation in our planet. I think the best way to think of it is massively integrated because there's every reason to think that climate change and global warming will also affect rates of disease mutation. So some of those shocks will also arrive in the form of extreme weather, for instance, like Dorian in the Caribbean, which was you know, a meteorologically shocking event, a 200 mile an hour plus hurricane that remained stationary for 48 hours, or the typhoon in the Bay of Bengal this year, again, an unprecedented event. And so we need to be ready for both sorts of shock and some of them you know unlike major weather events which will destroy regions some of those shocks in the forms of pandemics will have a shock-like quality but they will literally embrace the entire planet and that i think is the really awesome quality of of covid is that it moves at the space you know slightly slower than a hurricane but but you know a hurricane evolves over weeks but it embraces the entire planet and as such then will unleash macroscopic effects so the entire global financial market convulsed, basically, beginning in the last days of February, so much so that even the government bond market was affected, which is what really triggered the central bank's interaction, because that's the bedrock of all possible government action. And so those, that, is, that is what we now have to encompass, right? That the, the Anthropocene isn't just going to be an attritional struggle. It's actually some of the shocks are going to be very, very fast moving indeed. And we'll have a sort of for want of a nail type logic about them. So it isn't, you know, it won't be just a question of getting the big things right, changing the energy infrastructure, you know, changing the way in which we live. It'll be a matter of really not screwing up when it's a matter of imposing food hygiene rules or, you know, basic basic hygiene standards or wearing face masks. And that's a that's a whole different sort of challenge. One is getting the big structural transformation right. The other one is just being super alert and attentive. And that's where central banks do play a rather important role because they are the ultimate first responders. They're the, they're the fire brigade. They come faster. They can do a certain sort of thing very quickly. I have, I have a question, which is that listening to you, I just felt my body like physically <laughs> tense up and my heart rate start beating faster because it does not seem looking at our world today that our governments are going to do any of what you just described, at least not a lot of them. I feel that often on this podcast, I'm like, in the US, it's bad. But mm-hmm. you know, the US government has not responded to COVID well. And that's a crisis that you can see and you can you can touch and you can feel that it's it's all around us. It has not instilled me confidence that it's going to take the climate crisis seriously. And it's not just the US, right? You could look at Brazil as another example in which COVID has been devastating and the climate crisis will also be devastating. So am I being overly doom and gloom about this? Do you think that that there is cause for more optimism? Am I oversimplifying it? Or am I right to confess that I'm deeply nervous just listening to you? I mean, I think I think you're absolutely right to be concerned. I mean, I mean, it's a complete truism, but but COVID has obviously been an extraordinarily stark demonstration of huge disparities in governmental capacity, but not just governmental capacity, civil society capacity for you know peer-based mutual self-discipline, you know, self-disciplining mechanisms, rational political debate. Right? We have seen huge disparities 
And for an integrated shock, which, as it were, to be truly fixed, needs everyone to fix it. This is really worrying. So no, I don't think there's any there's any reason to be optimistic at all on that score. It's been devastating. It, it, it's important to be clear about, you know, the politics of this in the in that obviously, you know, everyone certainly on our side of the fence, and I, I dare say the overwhelming majority of the readers of the New Statesman love to hate Trump. But at the national level, at least, I mean, the COVID crisis and the failure of politics in the United States has been nowhere near as bad at the national level as it was, say, in Italy or the UK. You know, New Statesman has done brilliant work documenting the utter shambles of the, of the UK response. Same is even true at Brazil. I mean, the, the thing you just have to wrap your head around is Brazil is an absolutely enormous country. So very, very large numbers for COVID, you know, are still not proportionally as bad as the numbers for Belgium or the UK or Italy or, or New York State. So the challenge here is quite comprehensive and it does indeed need a, a, a major rethinking. And there is absolutely no reason to think whether we're talking about global pandemic politics, global public health or climate change, that so far many governments at all have shown any real willingness to take you know, the necessary measures with necessary seriousness. I mean, the Paris commitments, which serve as the totem for sort of centrist climate politics, are patently inadequate right, to the task of actually stabilising the climate at anything like an acceptable level. And yet, yet that was the, the only deal that was actually possible in 2015. So no, there is, this is a quietly stated catastrophic vision that I'm, that I'm pointing to. But there are bits you know, of, of greater degree of mobility and greater degree of response capacity. And that's what we saw in the central banks in March. I mean, that turned out to be the easy bit to fix, deriving a vaccine, actually deriving effective you know, public health measures, responding globally and addressing the crucial hotspots. That's really difficult stuff. But handling, you know, the instability of financial markets, it was that was, relatively speaking, an easy thing to do. Do you think that there's a risk that the economic response has been too reliant on central banks? I mean, you say that it's a story of it's a success story in many respects. You know, central banks, generally speaking, moved fast. As you say, they have a certain firepower and responsiveness. And in most cases, were followed up with fiscal measures by governments, you know, obviously bigger in wealthier countries than in the global south. But but across the world, there was then in most places, some sort of fiscal response, often expressed in things like furlough programs. And I mean, looking ahead to the autumn, and taking into account what Emily says about sort of political dysfunction and the many reasons to be pessimistic, in quite a lot of these countries, the money for uh, or the kind of the room to borrow for these furlough programs and other forms of fiscal stimulus is going to run out. Not everywhere. I mean, here in Germany, there's been an announcement that it will be job subsidy program will be run well into next year and beyond. But assuming that quite a lot of governments, including, for example, Italy's, wind up their rescue packages in the autumn, one assumes that, that we will be leaning even more on monetary activism to keep the whole show going. The same accusation was made in the last economic crisis, but is there too much reliance on, on central banks in, in, in crises like these and, in, and indeed the current one? I think you're absolutely right to worry. I mean, the historically novel thing about the COVID shock early on this year was how quickly fiscal policy did respond. So we've never seen outside wartime a fiscal response of this scale and speed. I mean, you know, the, the, the big, big large percentage points of GDP spending programs were coming in thick and fast from really the middle of March. And normally you would expect a lag of months, if, if not even years, in fiscal policy response. So this was, this was extraordinarily un, uh, unusual and absolutely the right thing to do. 
closely interconnected with central banks because to, to, to manage the flow of debt, the, the central banks uh, are crucial. And so there was really quite a successful, even in the Eurozone in the end, quite a successful coordination of fiscal and monetary policy. The worry absolutely has to be whether it whether it will be sustained, and we don't need to talk in the future tense. In the United States, the agreement there was never a consensus, but the agreement in Congress has already broken down. So basically, we're we're seeing the, the crucial and highly effective um, stimulus measures, the CARES Act, that were, were adopted so quickly in the spring, uh, expiring, and we are going to see the U.S. economy um, going off a fiscal cliff unless some some deal can be done. So it's, the argument has already arrived. In other places, it's, it's expressed more subtly than in the sort of loggerheads that we're seeing hordes locked in Washington. It'll come in the form of euphemisms like sustainability, you know, sensible considerations of budget balance will intrude. Bureaucratic, you know, routines will continue, which will result in pressure to run down the deficits. Yanis Varoukakis reminded us a few months ago that the European bureaucrats actually managed to hold a meeting at which they concluded that Greece would return to a primary budget surplus next year. So, you know, I mean, the lunacy of kind of conventionally minded common sense austerity should not be underestimated. Yeah. People will grind their way through to those kind of conclusions in the face of all the evidence and, you know, my big hope, and, and it's a sort of, again, it's, it's quite a minimal hope, is that the sheer force of the facts will begin to shift the envelope. And we see it across, you know, the serious economic policy discussion has radically shifted from where it was 10 years ago. I mean, because once you've got a country, you mentioned Italy, the size of Italy, with a debt to GDP ratio of over 150%, I really think it's difficult to imagine even within the Eurozone, a group of people sitting down to say, okay, so how do we get Italy back to 125? Uh, okay, what we're going to do is plan half a century's worth of very large primary surpluses, because that will work. I mean, it's conceivable they will, and everyone may just sort of close their eyes, hold their nose, shut their ears, and sign the bond, the dotted line. But I think we may be moving out of that space. But don't don't underestimate the, the, uh, the potential for catastrophe. And and also, I think a very crucial dimension of this is what will be the international space. So you're absolutely right to stress that one of the, again, historically novel things about the spring was that we saw very large fiscal responses from emerging market economies. We already saw this in 2008, but but the big emerging market players did even larger programs this time around. All of them, Malaysia. Yeah, in fact, you can list the ones which don't, which didn't, which would be Mexico and India, basically, are the two really big emerging markets which didn't do you know, advanced economy scale fiscal stimuli. And it shows. And it shows, absolutely. No, no, no. So the thing about these fiscal stimuli is that they work. And I think the real question is, you know, will there be a shorter clock running on the emerging market programmes than there is on the advanced economy programmes? We're in a kind of grey zone here. We're no longer in the really stark black and white debt politics of the 80s and 90s, where... You know, there were really sort of swarms of bomb vigilantes out there preying on the weakest. They're, of course, still the weakest and they do get preyed on. But the line is really quite blurry. So, you know, big, sophisticated emerging markets can right now borrow at historically unprecedented interest rates, low interest rates, even though they're running very large fiscal deficits. So we're in a zone of negotiation and it will be very interesting to see how that works out over the next couple of years. My question for you is now is how confident are you that facts will guide people away from, or to put it another, another way, there was an interview with former Delaware Senator Ted Kaufman, who is a Biden confidant, 
And he said, when we get in, the pantry is going to be bare. He's leading Biden's transition team. And he said, when you see what Trump has done to the deficit, forget about COVID-19, all the deficits that he built with incredible tax cuts. So we're going to be limited. Leaving aside that I don't know how you can say forget about COVID-19, what did you make of former Senator Kaufman's statement? And, And was that concerning to you at all, given everything that you've just said? Yeah, I mean, he's exactly the sort of person we need to worry about. This is a very sensible person apparently on the right side of politics and history, spouting essentially mainline conservative fiscal uh, opinions, which have the appearance of common sense, but would be completely disastrous if they became the guideline of fiscal policy in a Biden administration, if we were indeed lucky enough to get to one, because I share some of your scepticism about the possibilities of a democratic victory. And uh, we saw this played out in the Obama administration. This is the tragedy of Obama's economic policy, that these sorts of ideas that in the end fiscal constraints binding and that it is the responsibility in particular of centrists and progressives to take them seriously in the face of the fact that our political opponents on the right just blatantly ignore them. That has been the curse of progressive politics really since the 1990s. And in the case of the United States, it's particularly shocking to hear because the constraints on the US as a borrower, as an issuer of debt are minimal. There really is no downside risk to pursuing the spending that is necessary and so evidently necessary in the the US right now. I, I have no problem, of course, talking about the progressive change in the tax system that would actually require the extraordinarily wealthy upper class of the United States to make an adequate contribution to the public spending of this country. But that's a separate conversation and it should be driven principally by issues of you know, distributional concern, the, the fiscal side should be treated separately. And it's deeply dismaying, entirely predictable. It was only really a matter of time, I think. If you know anything at all about the politics of the Democratic Senatorial Caucus, you'll know how strong these voices are. But it would be it would be absolutely fatal if that became the dominant voice. So as a historian, you know, I've tracked the emergence and the insistent force of that kind of rhetoric inside the Obama administration. We can we can we can identify really to the month, the moment at which they turned. And it's a struggle that you know has to be conducted in the public sphere, it has to be conducted within within the ranks of the Democratic Party. And I've, I've seen, I mean, in meetings with the Democratic Party Senatorial Congress in Washington, D.C., in fact, I've been used as a wedge in that argument. Um, I've watched Chuck Schumer literally say, point at me and say, so this guy, Tooze, he's saying that we shouldn't really prioritise the budget balance. That's what you're saying, isn't it, Tooze? Yeah, that's what you're saying. And then he turns around to two of his colleagues and says, points at them and says, do you hear what he's saying? That argument is actually going on and it needs to be pushed with, with all the weight that we can, we can muster. One last question I wanted to ask you, Adam, was about multilateralism. Because as you point out in your piece, you, you quote a Chinese virologist saying that COVID-19 is the tip of the iceberg. You talk about the coming and indeed already present climate crisis. And it strikes me that to the extent that the world community, if we can call it that, has just about kind of coped with the economic shock of COVID, or at least to the extent that it has mitigated that shock through the monetary activism you describe and through the unprecedented fiscal response represented by the actions taken by most governments. To the extent that that, that, that some things have 
gone well or better than might have been anticipated. Don't you find that that sits in tension with the fact that the multilateral world order is fraying, with the fact that we've seen, you know, there isn't really much of a global community to speak of in a way that we might have done 10 or 20 years ago. At what point, as the world is assailed by these future crises, does the weakness of the multilateral order really prevent us from responding in any sort of coherent way to these shocks? I mean, I think this is, you know, an absolutely critical question. And especially, you know, if you view the world from the point of view of, say, a medium-sized country off the shores of Europe, it's going to rely very heavily on the, the robustness of multilateral structures, which once could be taken for granted and, and probably can't be in future. And it's absolutely clear that the global monetary and financial system has an absolutely unique structure which is on the one hand incredibly densely networked. It's a very tight community of people that know each other extremely well and are socialised in, in very, very common environments amongst the central bankers and the people who do monetary policy and financial regulation. It, it operates in a system which is itself, in other words, the global financial system, which is integrated by private transactions to a massive degree. And furthermore, it's intensely hierarchical. So basically, if the Fed moves everyone else's conditions for movement change. And then if the ECB moves too, then that adds another piece. It's a system where it's very easy, if you like, to achieve coordination, especially if you've got a proactive and intelligent and broadly speaking, cooperative key player, which the Fed has proven to be. So it is exactly, as you say, totally unrepresentative of the wider situation, which is you know, coming apart at the seams in a very dramatic way. As a historian, I think I would want to insist that one shouldn't exaggerate, as it were, how coherent the multilateral system ever was. And yeah. if you think about, you know, the WTO, you know, it, it's, it emerges out of the, the broken project of World War II in the form of GATT, is it's been briefly assembled in 1995 and hasn't really had an effective round since 2008, right? So the global trading system, Trump is obviously deliberately sabotaging what was left of the WTO, but it wasn't in great shape. The WHO is, is, a, is a sham. I mean, its budget is the size of, somebody was telling me recently, a large New York hospital. It looks like a global organisation dedicated to what one would take to be a rather important issue, namely global public health. But, you know, a huge slice of its budget comes from private foundations, like the Gates Foundation. So we haven't really even made a serious start on the project of global health multilateralism, certainly not on the scale that we would you know, take seriously. It's, it's, it's a trivial uh, effort so far. Realistically speaking, short of a transformation in American politics, any commitment that a Biden administration would make would in any case be hedged around by the fact that you know, it has to deal with Congress, where a group of incredibly recalcitrant nationalists have a veto unless they change the, pro- the procedures of, of the Senate. And there's always the possibility of another Trump victory. So, I mean, I completely agree. It's not, you know, even if Biden wins, we have to face the fact that there was a possibility that Trump could have, um, you know, and the rest of the world has to conduct itself accordingly. Insofar as there are is an optimistic outlook, it has to depend on various types of powerful coalition of other types of players. And the key components of that, as you, if you take climate as the, as the real arena for this, are obviously relations between the EU and China. And that was the basis on which we thought Glasgow COP26 was maybe going to come good this year. And there was an entire timeline of European-Chinese diplomacy set up for this year. So as hopefully, by way of a deal between Merkel and Xi, to secure 
you know, a constructive forward moving agenda for climate, which would then potentially provide the platform on which to bind the Indians in and then the other key players, the coalition of the willing. Obviously, that you know doesn't include the Brazilians. It doesn't include necessarily the Saudis, the Russians, the Americans open a huge fault line in this, a non-cooperative American administration does. But that is, I think, the future form. In a, multi, in a multipolar world, that, I think, is the most likely shape of concerted international action in future, is, is that kind of coalition based on big regions where the costs are internalised. I mean, China doesn't need, you know, the, the costs of climate change are internal in China. It needs a solution. There's no real scenario in which China can successfully free ride because the impacts on it itself will be so dramatic. So that, I think, it's very hodgepodge. It's certainly not the kind of visions of 1944, Bretton Woods, so on, yeah. that are so often touted. But then as a historian, I have to say those are very unrealistic accounts of how that structure was built in the first place. I like the curiosity of central banks having been a leading force in responding to this crisis, but in many ways are the least representative part of of the global system in that respect. And with that, we are going to turn now to a segment that we like to call... You Ask Us. Killed it, Jeremy. Great job. Yes? (laughs) Moving swiftly on, would you like to lead in with our question? Because it actually takes us on quite nicely from what Adam was just saying. So our question comes to us from a listener named Lukash or Lucas. I apologize for whichever one was wrong. And it's, do you see the world moving away from the dollar as reserve currency? If so, over what time frame? Adam, as you are the expert, we will let you take a stab at that one. This is a question that's being very widely asked right now. It has been for, for years. I mean, I think there are two, two drivers of the question. And one is the huge expansion of dollar issuance, if you like, by way of the Fed. There's a sense that the fundamentals must suggest that America is going to lose its position as the dominant currency in the global system. There are just too many dollars out there for them to be scarce and therefore valuable and therefore suitable as a reserve currency. And I think the other dimension of the question if, is the desire to uncouple from America, especially in light of the you know really increasingly brutal use that the US is making of financial sanctions of various types as a way of imposing whatever it takes to be its vision of the world on actors, including you know, European companies that want to transact with Russia over, say, uh, Nord Stream 2, or companies that want to do business with Iran. And then, of course, now increasingly, the incredibly wide range of entities that might want to do business with various sensitive Chinese corporations. And I think those two things together push this question. It's not going away. It's a very important question. It's very difficult to really give a definitive answer. If you look at what currencies major reserve holders are holding their reserves in, there is a mild tendency away from the dollar. And in certain areas of raw material transactions, Europe, for instance, conducts an increasingly large share of its trade, as you would expect, in euro. But there isn't the decisive decisive break. And we don't really have a historical model for thinking about the sort of transition. The comparison with the pound sterling, I think, for all sorts of obvious reasons, is is not really very relevant to the 21st century. The end of the pound as a reserve currency was brought about by World War I and World War II, which, which is presumably not something that we want to integrate as a realistic horizon of our politics today. So I think, you know, it's a, it's a weak answer, but it's, it's the most realistic one, which is that you would expect over time, and it's a matter of decades, a plurality, a greater plurality of currencies to emerge along the existing and already obvious lines 
with the euro, the dollar, and a yuan renminbi-based system increasingly operating as a sort of tripolar system. I would expect, as you were, arbitraging and portfolio-style approach to become more and more, more and more common as we as we go forward. One of the, 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 the curiosities here, it seems to me, is it is assumed and it is taken as read that China's government wants to make the renminbi a global reserve currency. And yet it's sort of geopolitical actions in many ways cutting completely the opposite direction. We've, we've talked a lot on this podcast about the crackdown in Hong Kong, which, which presumably greatly undermines China's best chance of, of, of internationalizing the RMB. Do you think the will is really there? Uh, certainly on the Chinese side, to try and compete with the dollar? I think one we should probably disentangle like different elements. I agree, it's a very contradictory situation. I think not being dependent on the dollar is, is, is something the Chinese are really quite interested in. Whether they really want the renminbi to function as a reserve currency in the way that the dollar did or has and continues to do, I think is a quite different question. And we've seen really since the really major financial shock to the Chinese economy in 2015 that there's been a clampdown on foreign exchange controls and effort to regulate the outflow because at that moment in 2015, very underestimated, I think, in our panorama of recent economic history, Beijing really felt its vulnerability. Why? Because there's just so much hot money. I mean, trillions of dollars of hot money that could flow out of China if it was given a chance. And as political tension escalates, that that probability rises. Hong Kong, I agree, is a strategic issue, but I think Beijing's strategy here is to leave Hong Kong in place and allow it to be outgrown by Shanghai. Mm -hmm. And and in the meantime, just exert pressure and and muscle, if you like, the transnational actors which are there. And so far, no one's bolted, right? HSBC and Standard look as though they are frozen in place, essentially, and desperately trying to negotiate between the imperatives of you know, the demands of their Hong Kong employees, the demands of Western uh, markets and governments they deal with, and the insistent demands of both Beijing and the mainland Chinese staff that are a key part of their workforce. Yeah. And American actors like JP Morgan and some of the big fund managers, you know, the Black Rocks, the Black Stones, the private equity of this world are quite desperate to get into the Chinese market. So Beijing has some some leverage there. I think what we're going to move towards is the renminbi being a more and more important currency, but not functioning necessarily in the way that the US currency has as a, as a reserve currency since, since 1945. I, w- I wonder if there's almost a parallel with the Europeans there too, in the sense that you know Europe has long wanted to, to sort of challenge the dollar's exorbitant privilege, but you know, and, and would like to see the role of the euro increase. But then you look at what it would actually take you know far better than I do, for the euro to genuinely rival the dollar. I mean, I'm sitting here in Berlin, and many of those things would not sit comfortably with the sort of you know, domestic politics in, in, a lot, in many euro member states. Yes, and you would need, I mean, above all, you'd need a large debt market, you'd need a large safe asset that was issued in euros, which on the basis of the July compromise is going to emerge, not at the sort of scale, of course, of the US Treasury market. But I mean, I mean, if you go back to the 1970s, when the Bretton Woods system that was anchored on the dollar collapsed, I mean, one of the determining you know, considerations of German policy throughout the 1970s was a, to avoid the Deutschmark becoming a reserve currency. I mean, the moment at which the dollar's position as the global reserve currency was most precarious recently in the last 50 years is not, not, not today, but 1978, 1979, when the dollar was really on the skids, the Carter administration's authority was, was collapsing, the impact of two oil shocks was shaking the world economy. 
and there was insistent, you know, questioning of whether either the Japanese yen or the German Deutschmark was emerge uh, for the Western economies as the new anchor. And it was the absolutely last thing that Bonn and Frankfurt wanted at that point, because one of the side effects is your currency tends to be overvalued. And so if you are then trying to run an export orientated economy as Germany continues to do, that makes life very difficult for you. Just look at what look at yeah. the situation of Switzerland, which isn't a reserve currency, but is a safe haven currency. And their central bank has to continuously buy foreign currency and sell Swiss francs so as to keep the exchange rate down and to enable their very substantial manufacturing sector to remain competitive. That would be the fate of you know, the eurozone if it really emerged as a rival to the US. Since we had such a robust discussion on, on this question, we are going to limit our US guests to one question this week. But we encourage listeners to continue to write in at it's very easy to remember, uaskus.co.uk. And a quick reminder that we will be doing uh, fairly soon a big roundup of all of the you Ask Us questions we didn't get around to in the regular episodes. So keep them coming in. We should also note that sometime guest, sometime co-host Ido Vak will be joining us to discuss those you Ask Us questions. So Ido fans, don't worry, he'll be back. Adam, before we let you go, what in the coming week will you be looking out for watching, waiting for, etc. Oh, I don't know whether it's in the coming week, but the date that I'm really focused on right now is the 8th of September, which is when the US Congress reopens and the Senate comes back into business. And that'll be the moment when we know whether or not there's going to be some kind of fiscal deal for the United States. Without that, the autumn is going to get very rough for the US economy and not just for the economy, for US society, because millions of people have been depending on supplements of various types, stimulus checks to support them through this crisis. And when that money runs out, things in the US are going to get much more serious than they already are. Yes, as a reminder, Congress is not uh, working right now. Jeremy, what about what about you? I will be looking out for the uh, summit of EU foreign affairs ministers, which will be taking place here in Berlin on uh, Thursday and Friday next week, so the twenty seventh and twenty eighth. It's going to be there's going to be a lot on the agenda. You know, you look at Europe today, and it is surrounded by a crescent of unrest or geopolitical turmoil of one form or another. You've got the uncertainty about the future of Belarus. You've got the growing tensions between Greece and Turkey in the Eastern Mediterranean. You've got the ongoing crisis in Lebanon. You've got the question about the future of Libya, particularly with Egypt looking to take a bigger role there. And on a lot of those subjects, actually EU countries either differing in nuance or in emphasis in how they think the union should reply or respond, and in some cases actively siding with different parties within within conflicts or disputes on its own borders. So it's going to be a real test of where the um, compromises and common positions can be found. So I'll be, I'll be looking out for that. And I, I mean, this isn't quite as lively as a, a meeting of EU foreign affairs ministers. I don't know how I can top that. No, just kidding. Sorry to the EU foreign affairs ministers. I'm sure you're all very lively. I am bitter, obviously, in my answer, because next week we have the Republican National Convention. And I, as a US citizen and US editor of the New Statesman, will be watching that. You know, I, I worry a lot as a journalist that I sound biased in speaking about Trump and the current Republican Party. But the reality of the situation is that yesterday, the president told potential voters that those who think differently than they do are trying to cancel them and take their jobs away. And next week, we will see a couple who waved guns at people protesting police brutality speak at the Republican National Convention. I personally don't know how to describe that honestly and accurately without sounding biased, because the other reality is that, as I said earlier in this podcast, 
Trump's Republican Party is um, doubling down, appealing to the base. And I think that that is what we will see next week. And uh, a reminder, you can follow all of Emily's and the rest of the team's coverage of US politics and the uh, US election campaign on our website, newstatesman.com slash international. So all that remains is for us to say a very big thanks to Adam for his excellent piece, which will be in next week's print edition of the New Statesman and for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much, Adam. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. And we will be posting this week's episode on the World Review podcast webpage, along with all the previous episodes, as usual, newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review hyphen podcast, including a link to Adam's recent pieces for the New Statesman. Please tell your friends and enemies, acquaintances, distant family members about this podcast. You can like, you can subscribe. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you so much for listening. We'll not see you, but you'll hear from us next week. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 